0: Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to entrepreneurial and data storytelling. Uh, As always brought to you by Cathcart Associates, technology recruitment experts. Today on the show, I'm speaking to Sarah Rudd, the former head of analytics at Arsenal Football Club, and now the vice president at Blue Crow Analytics in the States. Uh, She just so happens to be one of the early pioneers of data analytics being used in football. Welcome to the show, Sarah.
1: Yeah, thanks very much for having me.
0: Really excited to have you on the show. I've been trying to do a sports episode forever. It's a bit of a closely guarded secret data sports teams or uh, companies, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it tends to be a, a kind of a tricky thing to have a, I guess, public profile when you're in such a guarded industry. Um, and it's not just always around trade secrets, but, you know, there's always the concern about things being misinterpreted or taken out of context. And, um, you know, you always want to protect your clubs that you're working for.
0: And I think in football specifically, people are super tribal. So if they listen to something, didn't quite understand it, and then the team starts doing badly, they'll kind of latch on to things to blame. And they'll be like, oh, well, it's probably because we're doing analytics instead of scouting, or it's probably because we're doing this. So yeah, it's sometimes safer just to not say anything. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, the opposite is true sometimes where, you know, you might say something and then, uh, it becomes a story where it's like, oh, like data has, you know, been responsible for this, responsible for that. When really, it was a team effort. Um, so you just want to, you know, I think be very sensitive about those sorts of things.
0: Yeah, I saw when um, Kevin De Bruyne signed his new contract. They said it was because he used data to prove his worth. And I was like, surely it didn't take that long. Like he's one of the best. <laughs> he's one of the best players in the league, and he wanted to stay. Like it can't have been a hugely complex like deep dive that he did into his own stats, I wouldn't have thought, but maybe he did. Who knows? Um, Yeah, absolutely.
1: And there's, you know, a a lot of people that were probably involved in that deal as well um, that helped. Yeah, they
0: made it it sound like it was him and like a couple of people. Yeah, I'm sure it was very, very complicated. And even I wanted to try and speak to uh, someone in Formula One about how they use data because I know that they've got some great kind of data scientists and data engineers, but someone who actually works for F1 said to me that, there's no way anyone from a team who currently works there will ever come on because they'd be too scared of saying something that another team could use or i don't know just it's just not worth it it's not worth the hassle basically is what he said so yeah that all makes sense and um, before i get carried away and talk about football for an hour let's have a quick walk through kind of your your background so you are from the states you studied in new york right
1: Yep, yeah, I did my undergrad at Columbia. So at the time, never envisioned a career in football. Um, so, you know, I did a dual degree with environmental science and computer science. I um, <laughs> really wanted to to work on global warming, but amazing how things kind of end up sometimes.
0: Yeah, no, I bet. And it, it must have been a pretty cool city to, to study in, like in terms of all of the places you could, you could kind of live and do things. New York's pretty high on on the list for a lot of people I would have imagined.
1: Yeah, it was an unbelievable place to to study and to live and I, I stayed there for a while. Um my mom is originally from there. Um so it was really great to, you know, always have have that in my roots but then get to experience it myself and then, you know, it just opens your eyes to so many different possibilities. Um so that was actually the first time that I had, you know, access to being able to watch the Premier League week in and week out um, because you could just go to a bar and watch it Uh, it wasn't as accessible on tv back then as it is now
0: yeah no i bet and once you had kind of finished university you ended up working for again a good few years actually at microsoft um so you obviously moved from new york to seattle working as a software developer for probably, maybe at the time, the biggest technology company in the world, if not one of. Um, So that must have been a relatively interesting kind of period of your life.
1: Yeah. And there was actually a little interlude in between um, where I lived in uh, Chile for a couple of years. Um, Oh, no way. And then, yeah. So ended up in Microsoft um, because I was looking for a way to move back into the States. And so I landed there. And yeah, it was, I mean, it's phenomenal working at Microsoft because You know, it's at such a different scale than anything I ever imagined. You get to be in meetings with people like, oh, this is the guy that invented pivot tables for Excel. Um, (laughs) And just like, you know, like really cool, weird things like that. Or, oh, this guy did the scroll bars for, you know, Windows 95. Um, So, yeah, everyone just has kind of like a, a story or a piece of history, and you get to like, learn from some of the, you know, smartest people in the world. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was great working there. And, um, I was working at Bing really kind of in its early days, um, trying to kind of catch up to Google and, and make some ground. And, um, so that in itself was just crazy to me where, you know, you're all of a sudden talking about like actual big data and like petabytes of, of logs that you need to go through. So, uh, yeah, it's unbelievable.
0: Looking back now, do you think, some of the kind of tools available in data like today your job at bing would have been much easier because i imagine because a lot of the things people say are that the statistical techniques and the maths hasn't changed but the availability of kind of computing power really has um or was microsoft cutting edge enough that you think it would still be a similar outcome
1: no it definitely would have made things easier. So um, (laughs) not to give away too, too much, but a lot of the technology that we were working on in Bing kind of made its way into a lot of the Azure offerings now, but they were much rougher around the edges, much, you know, slower, much uh, less user-friendly to use. So, you know, you would send off a query for, you know, something you were searching for in terms of like, you know, user patterns or user behavior, and it could come back in a week, and maybe it failed. So it was like a really slow cycle of doing this type of research. Whereas now, with you know technologies like Spark, I mean, it's all kind of built off of the same uh, foundational stuff. You know, that sort of research. And granted, it's you know at a huge scale, but you know, you're talking about stuff that's going to be um, a lot more resilient, uh, less less failures, um, but also that time to get the queries back. Um, you know, it's not going to go from, you know, a week to seconds, but it's, you know, going to go down to like a day or something like that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally get it. And yeah, like I said, you, you spent a fair bit of time at Microsoft. So obviously the decision to move on, I imagine, was quite quite a big one. And it kind of leads us very close to the start of the, the football discussion. But you joined a company called StatsDNA. So in 2012, when you joined them, what did Stat DNA look like, and kind of what what was it that made you join?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'd always been a big football fan, and it was particularly difficult growing up in the states where you just didn't have access to it. But the more and more access I got to it, the you know, the more and more I just loved it. And so, even prior to moving to Chile, I was considering, you know, how can I get a career into football? And um, at Microsoft, it just got worse and worse, and I was. Thinking about it all the time, so Stati and I actually had a research competition, I believe, in 2011, and I entered that and I won. And I entered it with kind of the idea that maybe this will be something that can propel me into, you know, a career in football. And so at at the time that you know my paper was published and I gave a talk on it, there were a lot of people starting to talk to me saying like, hey, you know, maybe we could do something together. Come come work for me here at this you know data company or this situation. But what was really kind of exciting and attracting to me about StatDNA at the time was that they were collecting a type of data that nobody else had at that moment. And it's what I used in the the research competition, but it, it was really powerful. It gave you kind of this defensive context where you could start to build models that just couldn't do very well with other offerings that were out there. And so I thought, hey, you know, this is a really cool company that's doing something that I think could be really big. And so that was the reason that I wanted to join them. And at the time, you know, it was just a handful of people, but they had, you know, a number of of clients, um, some in Brazil, a lot of, you know, collegiate, American collegiate clients, but they had Arsenal as a client and Arsenal was their exclusive Premier League client. And so, you know, I was an Arsenal fan. And so having learned that as soon as I joined um, was was pretty special. And from there, it, it made sense for Arsenal to kind of bring that DNA in-house because um, they wanted to retain that secret sauce as kind of their competitive advantage.
0: Yeah, nice. And I was going to say, so yeah, I, I found out earlier that you were an Arsenal fan. So how did someone that grew up in the States, studied in New York, lived in Chile, Seattle, how did you become an Arsenal fan?
1: I, I think it's just, you know, you grow... You, you don't have that like geographical connection. So I think it's just, you know, Oh, what player kind of strikes you or what, I don't know something about the style of play, but you know, I started watching right around when Wenger came on board. Um, and it was just like a really fantastic time to, to follow the club and watch the club. And, you know, they had so many exciting players back then, like Bergkamp, Henri and then Fabregas. Um, so, you know, you just absolutely fall in love with it. And then, uh, I come to find out that um, you know this family that we were friends with. Um, the daughter is actually, or the the wife of this family that we're friends with. Um, she's the daughter of a former Arsenal player. So all along there had been that connection. I just never realized it.
0: That's so cool. And yeah, you're right. I suppose yep. there isn't the geographical pool, so you don't you don't have to support anyone. So you just kind of you find another reason, which is pretty cool. And it's so uh, it's just like it's a nice coincidence about stat dna and how it all came to be and then obviously arsenal brought them in house so did they buy the entire company or just say you do our football analytics and nobody else
1: no they they bought the entire uh football company and so this was always i think like a point of confusion like both externally and internally because we retained kind of the stat dna name and brand. Um, as sort of a distinguisher like this is data that is very very special and so people were also you know always like are you working for other people like if i tell you something is it gonna go somewhere else and we're like no 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 like we're arsenal employees (laughs) it's all right
0: yeah so you were like head of data for arsenal was is probably the easiest way to distinguish it um yeah and then correct me if i'm wrong but back then there probably wasn't lots of heads of data at high level football teams like even now people are catching up so what were the what was the kind of role supposed to look like and and what was the kind of remit and challenges that you and stat dna kind of faced in football
1: yeah so or- originally i was just the um you know vp of analytics and software development and then jason rosenfeld was kind of like the the ceo of everything over seeing you know all of of stat dna and then when he moved on um, I took over most of his role. But yeah, originally, I mean, it, it was kind of uncharted territory. Arsenal knew that they wanted us involved in recruitment, and that's something we had been involved in um, prior to the acquisition. But then also getting involved in, you know, a whole host of other areas of the club, like really anywhere where you would want to use data on the sporting side, suddenly became, you know, one of our areas of ownership. So, you know, looking at injuries looking at you know strength and conditioning programs looking at you know opposition analysis all sorts of things like that um so it's really just kind of like a a wide open area for us to kind of define you know where do we see value and how do we want to work
0: that must have been quite fun like can you help can you help us with data is a really nice question to be asked when you do what you do because that means you can go away research find the best areas to help and then at something the size of Arsenal, you can see the, the successes of it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, just an amazingly fun job and, you know, a great period to be involved in everything. And, you know, certainly there's going to be frustrations and, um, you know, a lot of them are born out of limitations. You know, it's like, you know, no surprise Arsenal has had uh, serious uh, problems with injuries um, in the past. But there's only so much you can do in terms of using data to help uh, yeah. mitigate those injuries or reduce those injuries. So, you know, you you go in and you have these lofty ideas of you know how you can really uh, have an impact, and then when you actually get the data and, and understand the complexities of the issues that these practitioners are dealing with day in and day out, you know, reality hits, and you're like, ah, oh, like <laughs> maybe there's not as much we can do here as we thought.
0: And as part of it. In terms of frustrations from a kind of software and data professional, when you're looking at things like recruitment, for example, if you're looking at certain criteria, identify someone or people that you think would be great, and then there's still that kind of human element of, well, I'm the manager or I'm the coach and I want to see them play and I don't think they're very good or, or things like that where you've kind of got to almost fight back a little bit using the data
1: yeah it's definitely like very complex like you know again i think you go in and you're very wide-eyed and you think like oh like they'll just take my word for it and then (laughs) you know everybody has has their own perspective in terms of how are we going to solve this problem because at the end of the day recruitment is solving problems in the squad Um, and so there's you know an unlimited number of of solutions that you could have to that problem or even, you know, agreeing upon what the problem is can be difficult sometimes. So there's, you know, a huge human element to it. And I think when you look at the clubs that are really successful using data, they're the ones that take that human element as seriously as possible and really make sure that it's working in conjunction with the data and not against the data or not, you know, trying to create these like, false adversarial situations um it's really you know incorporating everything together um because you know scouts are really good at what they do um sporting directors are really good at what they do managers are really good at what they do so you know it's it's not like these guys don't know anything it's just how do you leverage what they know in conjunction with what the data knows in the most powerful way um so i think you know that's been one of the huge keys to success and um Definitely something that I think gets a little bit undervalued sometimes.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, so I I support a team in Scotland, which have not got the same kind of spending power or or research as like an Arsenal or or a Liverpool. But recently they, they revamped their recruitment team, and one of the hires was a recruitment analyst who looks after lots of stats. And we signed someone purely based on stats from Australia that the scouts would never have been able to go and see or make a judgment on. And it's been a huge success whereas also there's other ways of doing it and and like you said working together is probably the best way to do it I did read something very funny doing the research for today it was six of Arsenal's worst signings using stat DNA um, <laughs> and I won't go through them all because there's no point in go through that one of them though was Olivier Giroud the, the world <laughs> cup winning striker that won several trophies at Arsenal was regarded as a poor signing uh, so I don't really, don't really know what people expect from you, to be honest.
1: Yeah. And I don't really know what a stat DNA signing means. Um, there's never been a stat DNA signing. Um, again, it's always been part of a process and we, <laughs> I guess people underestimate how much power stat DNA had that we could go in and like force the hand and say, you have to sign this player <laughs> no matter what Arsene Wenger says with all of his trophies, um, you know, it's it's always been part of a process, and you know, there's no stat DNA signing, and there's no scout signing. Uh, everything, yeah,
0: everyone works together, for, right? That's the whole point. Yeah,
1: for years, it's always been a process.
0: Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's one of those things like what we said at the start about people who work at clubs not wanting to come on because they don't want people then blaming them for signing Olivier yeah. Giroud, uh, <laughs> which is yeah. just not how it works. So, there's obviously been a huge rise in data in football and sports in general but do you know things that you see now with expected goals and expected assists and all of these different kind of data points it's the first thing that people talk about now especially from a fan point of view do you think there's kind of potential issues with people almost people who aren't qualified trying to get too deep into data for example
1: yeah, it's it's definitely a concern and, you know, I think expected goals is a, a great example where there isn't really a universal expected goals model, like it's not a ground truth, um, you know. So, you know, being American, well-versed in baseball, you know, there's batting average and that's calculated and you could have any data provider in the world and they're going to tell you that, you know, the batting average of this person is the same as what everyone else is going to tell you, but that's not the same with expected goals expected goals, it's a model built off of, you know, different features that some might be proprietary to different uh, data providers. You know, there's certain decisions that you make when you're choosing that model and setting it up. And so people are kind of having these conversations without really understanding what model am I even looking at? What does that mean? Like, what does, you know, what is it built on? What is it missing? What assumptions have been made? So first and foremost, like that's a huge issue. Because, you know, some models are going to take into uh, account, you know, where's the goalkeeper, some models are going to take into account where the defenders are, some are just going to be based off of location. And like, that's a huge difference. So now you have people kind of making decisions or or arguing about things like this without really understanding how it all works, which is a little bit scary. But you know, at the same time, I think it's also a huge opportunity. As someone who grew up as kind of like a, a huge nerd and math person, like, If you had said, like, oh, here's how you can have, learn about stats or learn about modeling uh, using sports, like, that would have been awesome for me. Even though it's like a little scary and dangerous, like, I think there's a big opportunity for people to use it as a great teaching tool.
0: Yeah, I think the right people with the right motivation is awesome. I think the frustration for me as a fan is when you see other fans say that. X player isn't very good, or X player is amazing because of their expected goals and assists. And like yeah. you just said, there's no ground truth. And also, there's so many other things involved in football, like the the pass before they assist, or um this, like you said, the situation before they score. Like these things are difficult to take into account and aren't as aren't as kind of absolute. And even like lots of the providers now tell you how far someone's ran in a game. That's interesting, but what if they didn't follow any of the tactical like, information from the coaches and just ran around a lot? Like, There's something to be said for stats for stats' sake, which is obviously where very good people like StatDNA and where you are now can come in and help decide what is useful. Because, yeah, just running around a lot isn't necessarily a metric of having played well.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, it could mean that you, as you said, are just completely uh, tactically unaware of where you need to be, or you're always, you know, kind of chasing shadows um, because you're out of position.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think um, Wan-Bissaka at Man United often gets cited as an excellent tackler, but it's often because he's chasing his own tail (laughs) and he has to (laughs) and he has to make that tackle um so yeah it depends how you manipulate the stats right and i've noticed people now talk about um non-penalty goals like that penalties don't count um again it's a strange it's a strange deviation away from the whole point yeah so no it's really interesting do you think is there bigger challenges now for people like arsenal and major sports teams across the world that everyone is using data now, whereas before you were kind of, like you said, early adopters, a bit of a blank canvas. Is it now a race to do it, just do it the best um, rather than just using it? Because it used to be the differentiator that we are using data and other people are not, but now kind of everybody is. So how how do you get it right, do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely become a lot harder. You, there used to be, you know, a few clubs that would just do something absolutely bonkers and you would say why are they doing that and you don't see that as much anymore where teams are generally signing players that kind of make sense for them Um, and so it really does come down to you know who can do it the best you know and I, i think too like um there's there's still a lot that we're learning tracking data is just now becoming available for recruitment whereas before it was really only used for tactical analysis within your team or within your league. Um, But now there are certain providers that are providing tracking data for recruitment. And so that opens up like a whole new areas of research where you can start to understand more in depth, you know, what are some of the risk factors moving from one league to another? Um, What is this guy doing off the ball? Whereas before that was really kind of scouting territory, so a lot of that is is still areas where you can have a big advantage because not all teams are really set up to, to take advantage of tracking data because it requires a certain level of technical skill, um, but it also takes a lot of time. And so if you have a small department, you could be like the smartest person in the world, but your day-to-day demands are going to keep you from kind of making as much progress on those types of problems as you know maybe some like a a bigger team because they can dedicate one or two people full time to it so yeah i think yeah there's there's still a lot of advantage there to be had
0: yeah no that makes sense and you made a good point there about from recruitment from different leagues to different leagues like yeah is there data around that that you can see that someone will fit in well to the premier league for example whereas they might not do so well somewhere else um you mentioned that before people used to just you would see clubs doing like bonkers things was that one of the things when you were at um arsenal that you would look at someone that a competitor had recruited and you were just thinking like wow like why did they do that they've obviously not looked at any of the things we have
1: yeah, I mean, definitely, like, I mean, you do it one for fun, because you want to see what everyone else is doing. Um, yeah. But I think there's a lot you can learn in terms of, like, not just analyzing the success of your own transfers, but other people and trying to understand, you know, well, how are they approaching this? How are they trying to solve this problem? Um, so, you know, we'd always look at um, what other teams had done and, and kind of scratch our heads and say, like, what were they looking at? Like, how did, how did they come to this conclusion?
0: There must have been some that you kind of not missed, but some that were kind of under the radar and you were thinking like, oh, why have Mine United signed that person? And then they turned out to be amazing as well. So there's obviously lots of stuff to learn as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the big, big reasons that you would want to do it. It's like, well, what did they see that we didn't see? You know, because it's always about, you know, self-reflection and improvement. Like, how can we make the next window even better? How can we make the next window even better?
0: Yeah, because people always talk about Leicester when they won the league and all of these kind of gems that they found that nobody else did. But I imagine a lot of them are on the radar of many, many clubs. There's just so many different things that go into recruitment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you could identify a player as someone who's going to have great potential, but maybe at that time in your squad, there isn't a spot for them or you don't want to have that kind of risk of like, well, what if they don't develop the season? Maybe I want somebody who's like a little bit more guaranteed. So there's a lot of, I think, factors that go into how you're making that decision. Yeah,
0: I think people get so frustrated. This is happening where the club I support just now that people aren't getting signed quick enough. But recruitment is like one of the things the new sporting director explained was that they work in – like they work way ahead of time like they've been thinking about summer since last summer they've been thinking yep. about like ne- next january since the summer as well like it isn't just like you get to december the 1st and you think oh my goodness the window opens next month who should we sign um, like it takes there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of planning and like years of work and these things can just change very quickly
1: yeah i mean if you think about it like there's many many people employed full time at a football club tasked with recruitment as mm-hmm. you know their main area of responsibility like what do you think they're doing for <laughs> 11 months of the year
0: it's more just when someone so we're now on the 26th of january and hearts have been looking for a striker since the summer and people are just like well obviously they don't know what they're doing they've been looking since summer and i was like well maybe just it's not quite worked yet like it's, it's, so there's a patience element to it
1: yeah and you know one thing that fans maybe don't weigh heavily enough is that Sometimes the guy that you want, that you think is going to be a good fit, doesn't want to come to your club for whatever reason. It doesn't fit with their career objectives.
0: Yeah, I didn't watch it, but apparently the Sunderland documentary on Netflix was very good for that because you would see a chairman meeting a player ready to sign and then the next day they'd sign for someone else or (laughs) whatever. These things all just happen. And obviously as a fan, you don't see these things, but they could happen all the time. Right, I've went off on a massive tangent about football, which I expected to do, but not too long ago, you moved on from StatDNA um, and Arsenal uh, to become Vice President at Blue Crow Analytics. Why was it the right time to move? So this was kind of six months ago or so. Um, and also tell us about um, Blue Crow and uh, what you and the company
1: do. Yeah, I mean, so I guess there's never really a great time Uh, to move on. But, you know, you realize that, you know, you've been at the same club for almost a decade, and you only know really kind of like one style of working and one way of running a football club. So, um, you know, over the summer, through various different sources, um, a couple different job and career opportunities came my way. And so I started really thinking about, you know, well, what's next? What do I want to do? What do I want to do? And so I got in, in touch with somebody who's at kind of a sports investment company, um, and they're in the really early stages, um, but that's now become Blue Crow Sports Group, um, and they are putting together a portfolio of you know sporting properties essentially, um, and trying to really build like a, a network. And so when I thought about you know what's my next career move, working at a you know another top club or building a data department there didn't really sound too interesting um, because it's like, well, that's essentially what I've been doing. What's kind of like the new challenge? So building this kind of analytics company within a sports investment company really sounded attractive to me because, you know, now you have to deal with kind of like a portfolio of players and how do you manage their um, player pathway development and all sorts of things like that. But then Blue Crow Analytics is also set up as kind of a separate analytics company so that we can service external clients as well so i really have an opportunity to kind of see how a lot of different clubs are run and structured um while trying to come in and help them solve their problems as well in terms of you know how do we integrate data into what we're doing like what are the best models that we need to build here
0: are you still focused solely on football or i know from the website um, or from one of the job descriptions i read at blue crow it's it's very much sports focused. So, are you getting to touch on data in different sports as well?
1: Yeah. So, for the time being, it's hundred percent focused on football. Um, we're leaving the door open in case we do want to get into other sports, um, and that's something that we're always talking about. You know, when's the right time to enter this or that? Because, you know, the American style sports they very much have a data-driven culture. Um, the rest of the world less so. So there's a yeah. lot of opportunity there. And, you know, the people that we're working with, like everybody's a sports fan, you know, so it's not just, oh, we love football. It's, you know, we love all different types of sports. So, yeah, uh, yeah, we're leaving the door open. We haven't said no to any sporting opportunities, but right now the, the focus really is on football.
0: And is it different in the States? This just came to my head right now, but in football, transfers are very, like transactional, like a company bids to another company for one of their assets for kind of lack of a better way of explaining it in america there's the draft system so is it harder to use analytics for recruitment when it's not as easy to just say i want that person from that team
1: yeah i mean it's definitely different um the draft is you know a great source of young talent and so outside of the u.s you know there's a lot more focus i think on the academy and like Whereas in the U.S., you're dependent on other people developing talent and then you just get them for free. <laughs> like <laughs> it's, it's weird to me now that I've been uh, working in football so long. So it's still similar problems, just I think different solutions or different approaches to how you kind of get around that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, part of Blue Crew is looking at the challenges faced kind of internally but then you will be able to go work with clubs anywhere around the world to help them solve lots of the things that you've done at Arsenal already yeah is that the yeah absolutely
1: yeah
0: amazing and is there any projects that are are kind of live and in ongoing that you can talk about and if you can't that's fine
1: no, that's something that uh, you know we're not really uh, ready to to speak about yet.
0: No, that's fine. Uh, we'll we'll keep an eye on it. The last thing we always talk about on the show is around recruitment of your own team, not just recruitment of uh, football players. You obviously worked in Microsoft, tech giant, a startup in StatDNA that got acquired, and in a newly formed company now. So you've got really kind of varied experience in terms of size of firm you've worked for. And I think you're building a team just now at Blue Crow. So is there any anything you've learned or picked up along kind of along the years for building a really high-performing data team? Like what is the best way to do it?
1: Yeah, it's, it's unbelievably difficult. And I think probably something that we still haven't gotten right, but we're always trying to get better at it. So one of the really nice benefits of being an interviewer At Microsoft, is you get such a huge volume of candidates that you get to interview, and so I would always try to keep my interview relatively consistent, dependent on the hiring manager and what exactly they were looking for. But I always tried to keep it consistent so that I could then go back and see, like, oh, I really enjoy working with this person. Like, what did my interviewer feedback say? Or oh, I don't, (laughs) I don't think this person is up to snuff. Like, um, what did I miss? And so that gave me kind of the ability to hone a little bit, you know, what, what things am I overvaluing? What am I undervaluing? Obviously, you know, there's candidates I rejected and they probably were like amazing people. So I don't have any information on that, but at least for the peoples that I got to work with, I would get information on that. So that was a really good experience. I think in terms of like figuring out how to weight the different bits of information I was getting from the interview process, but over time, you know, interview processes have changed quite a bit. And so, you know, there's no more focus on like the typical whiteboard process. We tend to do something that's a little bit more realistic. Um, And then we also focus a lot more now on, you know, not just the technical side of things, but how much do you know about football? How do you uh, communicate? How can you summarize your results? What are the sort of things that you think about during your kind of like problem solving process? Um, So that's all like different pieces of information that I'm now looking for that, you know, back when I was at Microsoft, that wasn't the sort of interview that I was performing. And so, you know, I, I think it's moving in the right direction. Certainly the people that I've worked with in football that have been, you know, excellent, they have really great communication skills. They have really good, ways of explaining things that are incredibly complex in a very simple manner. They have like a really strong foundation in the, you know, the theory of the game, not just kind of like cursory fan knowledge. So I think those are all really important skills to have in a high performance team. And then something I haven't really figured out how to interview for, but I think is really important is figuring out when something is good enough. Um, So not necessarily being a perfectionist, but saying this is good enough and moving on to the next thing because the football world is incredibly fast paced. So, you know, being able to know when you're you've reached that point of diminishing returns is really important, but I have no idea how to interview for that. Like, (laughs) is this something that I think once you have somebody inside, you coach them on it, Um, which I think is another big component. Like right now hiring talent is incredibly difficult. You know, anybody who has experience working in data in football is already you know, at a club and probably really happy. And so you have a lot of people that either have experience with data or with football, but not both. Um, So you're going to have to do some growing and coaching and kind of upskilling of your staff. Do you think it's
0: really important, whether when you worked at Arsenal or now at Blue Crow, that they do, that they like football and or have worked in football? Or is it also okay to have people that have got very high level technical skills and they just want to problem solve it just so happens the problem is in football
1: yeah i think it depends on the role and if you have a big enough team you can definitely find a need for them and it's probably actually really good because you know maybe they're not so distracted by champions league games kicking off
0: midday here oh i will tell it's midday for a champions league game that's uh, cool it's, it's perfect
1: yeah but um in general you know if i had to pick between someone who had slightly better technical skills or somebody who had slightly better football knowledge, I'd probably go with someone with a better football knowledge, just because so much of the model development needs to be grounded in football theory, because it, it needs to be explainable. And you need to be able to go to a coach and say, like, this is why this clip that you think is wrong, like, here's what's happening. And why? Otherwise, you just don't have any credibility, like, coaches don't like black boxes um, they don't trust them they're they're skeptical to begin <laughs> with you know so the more you can do to kind of help them and get on board the better but they're also like amazing sources for feature engineering so you know being able to have those conversations with them and kind of extract what you need to know and and what they're they're looking at what they're seeing i think is really important
0: it's a super uh, good example of something that comes up lots on the podcast is that a data scientist needs to be able to go to whoever the end user is, so normally someone within the business, but maybe it's a client, maybe it's a football coach, and explain the really complicated thing they've done in a simple way or uh, the most appropriate way. Maybe it doesn't have to be simple, but most appropriate yeah. way. And yeah, that's a skill which I could see having football knowledge or football, the- like kind of football theory, like you said, would be quite important. Because yeah, if the person who's developed the model is super technical, can make it all work on a computer, but then has to go down into the kind of tactics room and explain it to a bunch of ex-professional football players and they've never watched a game of football, it would be quite tricky to get them on board.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it would honestly be a disaster. Um, <laughs> and I don't even know if they would they would get to that point because you know a lot of the stuff that you're doing tends to be unsupervised. So how do you even know that your results are... Sensical. if you don't know about the game
0: yeah yeah you don't want to come to a conclusion you run off to your boss and tell them how amazing it is and you've not taken into account that yeah it's completely nonsensical yeah <laughs> you don't want to waste anyone's time I, but you're building the team right now in houston is that right
1: that is correct yeah
0: is it a challenge to find people with kind of high level football knowledge in the states who work in data do you think or is it actually okay
1: yeah, I mean, su- surprisingly, it's not like 10 years ago, where if you could find anybody that even cared about football that worked in tech, um, it was a miracle. Um, there's a lot more people now, I think, who are are interested in it. Um, the problem is they tend to be a little bit more junior. Um, so a lot of people who are, um, you know, finishing up degrees and looking for jobs. So um, again, you know, the experienced peoples are, are, typically in role and the one role that's impossible to hire for is a data engineer. Um, Everybody wants to be a data scientist. Nobody wants to be a data engineer. So if anyone is listening to this and you're a data engineer, um, (laughs) track me down because I'd love to chat with you.
0: Unfortunately for you, it's not an uncommon problem. There's so many of our clients who say to us, like, we just need some data engineers. And like, yeah. so there's there's got to be a solution somewhere. Like, someone's got to do something to help more data engineers in some way. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but yeah. So the the market for data engineers just now is is absolutely bonkers. I mean, it's, yeah. it's
1: kind of a, a thankless job sometimes, where you know, you do all the kind of heavy lifting and then somebody else gets to go, ta-da, look what I built. And it's like, well, (laughs) you couldn't have built that without all my work.
0: Yeah. yeah, And some people must like that though, kind of, they don't have to do the the ta-da bit, they can just go and do what they do. Uh, But yeah, it's trying to find them is the tricky part.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've worked with some great ones over the years and really value them Um, because it is, it's a tough job. And but yeah, no, those great. people who, who like to do it like they're they're fantastic.
0: And to finish off on some relatively non data related chat, did you did you always work in the states for Arsenal, and did you get over to to London to watch games and and meet the the kind of people in in the company?
1: Yeah, so StatDNA has always been kind of headquartered and based in the U.S., um, and it was only in the last couple of years that we had kind of um, people at Colney full time, but. I've always been in the U.S., but would travel over to London um, probably every other month for a couple of weeks. So, yeah, we would just um, all kind of take turns cycling through so that there was always a big presence there. Yeah, going to the Emirates was fantastic. Saw some, some great matches there. Um, so I'm definitely going to miss being able to get over.
0: Oh, I'm sure they'll still invite you back. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I've, uh, I've never been to the Emirates for a game, but I've done the tour a couple of times, actually. Uh, but I'd love to actually watch a game there because the stadium is it's pretty epic when it's empty. Yeah, it's, so I imagine it's class when it's full.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful place. And uh, yeah, great when the team is buzzing.
0: Well, now you have a Scottish left back too, so I've got even more reason to go. <laughs> um, I was used to him beating the team that I support with Celtic, so I'm quite glad that I can now support him. So that would be good. It'd be good to go along. Well, thank you so much for your time. We could chat loads more about football, but I really do appreciate you coming on. And it'll be cool to see what Blue Crow do and and how it evolves. But yeah, I think people will, will really enjoy this.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a blast.